if you are truly aligned with doing good work in the world, things will pay off. I undoubtedly believe that. There's just, it's an unshakable truth of mine because I saw it day in and day out. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. How did it all start? Do you remember? Oh, I know what happened. How did it stop? You're now tuned into the Small Business Origins Podcast. I love an origin story. Each week, we dive into the real stories of entrepreneurs and businesses from across the nation. Who is he and what's his origin story? Who started with just an idea and are now making waves. I told you this was a good idea. This is Small Business Origins. Yeah, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Small Business Origins. I'm your host, as always, John Kelly, a.k.a. John the Marketer on Instagram and TikTok. You're tuned in to our nationwide search for entrepreneurs that have a story to tell. And joining us virtually in the studio is an entrepreneur that wants to do just that. From Boulder, Colorado, we have Joseph Pergolizzi with WebsiteClosers.com. Joseph, welcome to the show, man. Hey, John. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, man, it's our pleasure. It's an honor to speak with you, hear your story, and I can't wait to jump into it. But as always, we start out with an icebreaker question. So today's icebreaker question is coffee, tea, or tequila? What beverage do you love to start your day with? (laughs) Well, if only it could be tequila, if only, but we all have jobs to do. Right. (laughs) I'm actually drinking right now Herba Mate. I, I was drinking coffee for a number of years. And then I, you know, it's, it's funny. I wanted to see how many shots of tequila, shots of espresso I could have in one day. So over the course of like a week, I gradually ramped myself up and I had around six shots of espresso. And about an hour later, my back cramped so bad. I ended up in the emergency room. Yikes. <laughs> Man, I, I have a story of, of that taking way too much caffeine. I I took some caffeine pills one time and I was working overnight at a dollar general, like one of my very first, you know, real jobs that I had. And man, I thought I was going to die. I laid on my buddy's (laughs) couch and I was just shaking, finally went to sleep and then woke up the next morning. Okay. And I figured out, okay, there's a limit to caffeine. (laughs) And I'll tell you, unfortunately for me, it doesn't really do much for me either. I wish it did. I wish I could drink, you know, a cup of coffee and just be set for the day. But they often joke with me at work because it's like at eight, nine o'clock at night, I can drink a 300 milligram caffeine infused energy drink and then go right to bed. No problem. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know why I'm this way. I'm just broken, man. (laughs) But you know what? Out of out of hopes that something will, you know, eventually one day work. That's still probably the the drink that I have in the morning is like a rain or a bang energy drink. I like to pretend like it's a little bit healthier than, you know, monsters and that kind of stuff. But I still I don't know. Maybe it's just in my mind. I feel like I'm addicted to it. Yeah, there's something ritualistic, too, about drinks in the morning. It's the way to start your day. And then you can get I don't know, you can get all creative. At least I do. I try and mix like peppermint in my matcha or honey or it's just a ritual, I guess, like a lot of things. It's it's nice to like some people journal in the morning. Other people like make their coffee drink or their caffeine drink or some maybe some people do both at the same time. I'm not sure. But yeah, morning <laughs> yeah. drinks, morning drinks are good. Yeah. 100% man. I'm, oh. And I'm still that guy, too, that'll make a cup of coffee in the morning, you know, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just it's yeah. weird, but I like the taste of it. 
If you're looking to travel to more places than traditional commercial airlines can offer while experiencing the luxury, convenience, and comfort only a private aircraft can bring, you need to book with my friends at Haven Aero. They offer the easiest way to enjoy the extensive benefits of private air travel because you can access a wide variety of aircraft types and take advantage of far more destination options for direct flights into airports closer to your destination and on your schedule. Plus, you'll receive thoughtful personal attention to your comfort and lifestyle requests like getting to skip the lines and restrictive schedules of airline travel and enjoy all of the convenience and luxury of a private aircraft experience while saving time. Their aircraft are maintained to the highest standards, ensuring safe and reliable flights. Haven Aero takes the stress out of travel and allows you to arrive in style. If you're in the market, Haven Aero is there to support you when it comes time to buy or sell your aircraft. Buying or selling an aircraft can be a daunting task for any owner, and Haven Aero takes the guesswork out and provides maximum value for you. Their analytical approach to aircraft brokerage will leave you confident that your asset value is being maximized with minimal effort and minimal stress to the owner. Haven Aero's team has extensive maintenance and operational experience, and they know how to avoid the extensive list of potential issues that arise during an aircraft sale or acquisition. Don't miss out on the benefits of flying private, whether it's through a private charter flight, aircraft ownership, or aircraft management. Make sure to mention you heard all about them from John the Marketer on the Small Business Origins podcast and visit havenarrow.com to learn more and book your flight today. That's www.havenarrow.com, H-A-V-E-N-A-E-R-O.com. But Joseph, we're here to talk about you, man. So if you would just kind of yeah. tell me your personal story, like where'd you come from? How'd you get into entrepreneurship? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in New York City and... You know, like every like young kid in the 70s or 80s, I had a bike, BMX bike. And I remember the very first BMX magazine I ever bought. I think it was like August of 1987. It was a magazine called BMX Plus. And I bought that magazine and my whole life changed. I, from that point on, I became obsessed with BMX. I was introduced to skateboarding and lo and behold, there was a, a new store that opened up. I grew up in Staten Island. There was a new store that opened up that started selling skateboards. And this, again, this is like 1988. This is very early, 1989. And I was one of those guys that those kids that hung out at that shop. I would take a bus 45 minutes to go and spend you know, an hour after school at this store and I made a bunch of friends and eventually I just started doing odds and ends in the store, uh, cleaning. I just wanted to be part of the store. I wasn't even getting paid. And lo and behold, eventually I, I did get a job there at the bike shop that again, also sold skateboards. And I worked there a little bit throughout college, you know, my first year in college and Maybe some of your listeners know the brand Supreme. I became friendly with James, who started Supreme. I was a hustler at that time. The Beastie Boys were really, you know, pumping. The rave culture was pumping. And I loved vintage sneakers. So here's where all these roads kind of come together. I started going out to all the Army-Navy stores in New York City that I could find because that's where all the sneakers, those were the early sneaker stores, were Army-Navy stores. And I would buy up all the old Puma Clydes and Shell Toes and, and I would 
sell them at the skateboard shop I was working at. But James, who you know started Supreme, also uh, was involved in the Stussy store on Prince Street and the Union store on Spring Street. James would buy these vintage shoes from me, sneakers from me as well. So we had really a budding business relationship. And one thing led to another. And he told me he wanted to start a skateboard shop in New York City. He asked me for my help. So we went to Jerry's and we'd have breakfast and talk about this, you know, skateboard shop he wanted to open up. And one thing led to another. He ended up opening up Supreme and I ended up opening up my own store. And, you know, it's kind of funny, like, and I tell this to a lot of people that I consult with, like, you have to walk through open doors, don't try and like, force something good to happen. As long as you're active, as long as you're in the game, there's going to be open doors. And I would have never imagined opening up my own skateboard snowboard shop ever it just wasn't on my radar until i started playing with this idea of helping james open up his own store and it's very you know, sometimes business is a mystery sometimes life is a mystery and i was young enough i think i was 21 i was very young and naive not to have all these doomsday scenarios play through my mind so maybe one one of the first tips I could offer people is, you know, bring a sense of innocence to business because you really never know what's going to happen. So, yeah, that was my first business. It was a snowboard and skateboard shop in New York City. And I started it when I was 21 years old. And my parents gave me a very small loan at the time to start the business. And I opened it up on November 17th, 1994. And my very first month in business, I think I sold $30,000 worth of, of stuff, which was unheard of or totally unexpected. And it became a success from day one. A funny little story about November 16th, the night of November 16th, 1994, I had just finished merchandising the store for the last time. We were getting ready to open up the next day. It was probably 9.30 at night. I had my keys in my hand to lock the door. I locked the door. And then it hits me like a ton of bricks. And I have this realization that I now have to come back here every day for the foreseeable future. I, up until that point, was never really tethered to anything. And I was a young kid. And now all of a sudden I realized I had to come back to that store every day. That was my job. Up until that point, it was just this vision that I had. Oh, I want to create a cool place for kids to come and hang out. Oh, I love this counterculture. It's budding. It's awesome. It's so exciting. Oh, you know, I love what I do. This create, bringing creativity and exercising my vision into things. And then all of a sudden... I realized, oh, all that's now changing. I have a job to do every single day. I have to come back here. So it's a very sobering moment, completely unexpected. But the fact that I felt good about it gave me a sense of, okay, this is a, a, a natural next 
step of responsibility. You know, my creativity has led me to this moment of, yeah, it's a responsibility. So anyway, that was that's a little bit about how I started. There was certainly a little few more like twists and turns, but it really just came out of exposing myself to something that I became passionate about and then, you know, developed, had some experience, um, met somebody who had a very similar idea and passion that I did. And then lo and behold, I somehow mustered up enough courage to do it on my own. So yeah, that's how I started. I probably should pause here and let you, if you have any questions or something you want me to elaborate on. No, it's definitely, it's an interesting story because I don't think people really understand that portion of business sometimes where it's like, yeah, you may have this great idea and you enjoy what you're doing. You enjoy what you're around, but it's different when it becomes yours, when it's your company, your life, and you're responsible for it. It's something that we've talked about it on other podcasts we've had here where it was like, hey, if you're thinking about starting a business and you want to get into something that you're passionate about, you have to understand that sometimes starting a business around your passion may make you not passionate about it at all anymore. So did you see that going into, you know, that realization that now you have to come back? Did you kind of lose the passion for it because it became an obligation for you? Or how did that work? Yeah, you know, it was a lot of responsibility all at the same time. I remember going in on Thanksgiving to mop floors. So my parents, you know, celebrating Thanksgiving at their home and I walk in and I have dinner. And as soon as I finish dinner, I leave and I get ready to go back to the store to mop floors to get ready for Black Friday. So it was a massive amount of responsibility I really wasn't prepared for, you know, at 21 years old, writing large purchase orders with no real experience. I mean, the business really took off. It became a business pretty quickly. And at the same time, it was giving me a lot of means. You know, the business was successful. I started to travel. I was snowboarding in some of the best resorts in North America. And <laughs> you know, a lot of, again, like I was young and I had a lot of young friends and I had a, I had some jealous friends and I had friends that were, let's say, successful in their own right in the band scene. And I would hold these large, like outdoor music festivals with skateboard teams and and some of my friends would get upset that I didn't pick them and their band to play at the music festival. So I had like a lot of people slandering me, you know, whether it was through songs or verbal altercations in public. Like, I don't know if it was just, you know, everyone's young and immature or not that mature yet or what it was, but at a young age, I had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of criticism from other people. And, you know, at the same time, I had this kind of passion that was brewing, which was snowboarding. And I knew if I did not sell my business, I was going to lose the passion for snowboarding. So my store really was 
there was a vision there when I first opened it. I had no idea I was going to fall in love with snowboarding. I just had this vision that I wanted to create a cool place for kids to go and hang out after school. And I wanted to create a sense of community that was so apparent to me very early on. I wanted a sense of, create a sense of community for kids. And I was so in line, like that was such a part of my ethos that I really believe in karma. And that's partly why the business I think was so successful was because, you know, my morals were in the right place. And I learned that lesson and I still take it with me to this day that, if you are truly aligned with doing good work in the world, things will pay off. I undoubtedly believe that. There's just, it's an unshakable truth of mine because I saw it day in and day out at that store that whenever I would extend some sympathy to a kid who broke his skateboard deck or to a mother who was cashing her check on Friday and coming to the store to buy our kid a new pair of skateboard sneakers or whatever it was when I saw people really showing up for their family, supporting me and my business, I felt like I had to really reciprocate it. And, you know, I saw day in and day out that when you do good for people, people will do you good. And, you know, these are big things that are happening for a 22 year old you know, responsibility, large decisions, I will say like character attacks, seeing how families are really sacrificing for their little kids. Like these are really big, big, big things for me to metabolize at such a young age. And, and I became really interested in snowboarding became my outlet. And at a certain point in time, I said, you know, I can't, serve this community any longer in the way that I wish I could. I, my freedom, the way I was getting my freedom, my expression through snowboarding was, was calling me and the burden of that responsibility. I mean, you know, I would say this, my friends are out getting drunk and stoned and, you know, I'm mopping floors. So there was a, a large, there was a big difference. You know, I had money. I had notoriety, but I didn't have a girlfriend because I was too busy, you know, running a business. So, yes, the short answer is like burden, obligations, how it intersects with your passion. It was a very early lesson that I saw. And it probably, it's another one that really has stayed with me that when you, you have to temper your passion. I see this time and time again. It's the artist's dilemma in entrepreneurship where we are fueled by passion in the beginning, especially people who are more inclined to be creative and the visionaries. And at a certain point in time, if if it runs away from you, you will burn up in ashes and in flames. And it'll be a hard it'll be a hard resurrection. So if, if any of your listeners are really driven by passion, and enthusiasm about their product, SaaS product, physical product, service, whatever it is. Like, if you have said to yourself, like, I want to change the world or I want to change blah, 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 if you have that much, you know, again, just to use it like passion and enthusiasm, like, you should be prepared to check that and ground yourself because 
you will be engulfed and it will consume your life in not consume your life, but it'll become a it'll become a burden. What do you temper that enthusiasm with or that passion with? Practicality, balance, personal life, other interests, the understanding that you aren't doing this for charity, like there's got to be a strong financial component to it. Let the numbers, let your customers come first. Those are things that I have felt that help temper the trappings of passion. Yeah. So I'm guessing knowing what I know about you from, you know, your profile and stuff I've mm-hmm. looked into, then this all plays into what you're doing today with website closers. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. I have had uh, multiple businesses since that first one. I started a food franchise that I grew to 400 franchisees across five countries. So I've through my career, I've worked with over a thousand entrepreneurs and I've seen the trials and tribulations of the entrepreneur. I've lived the burn, lived through the burnout cycle. I've lived in the drought of what do I do next? And this, where I am today as an M&A advisor, I work with entrepreneurs who either want to buy a business or want to sell their business. And you know, I love what I do because there isn't a whole lot I can't relate to. When I'm on the phone with someone, if I'm if I have a client, whether it's a half a million dollar business or a ninety million dollar business that I'm helping them sell or even buy for that matter, I just feel so at home in this process because I've just seen it. Maybe I haven't seen the exact same scenario that Neil is going through or that Merrick is going through. But you know what? Like I can relate on the challenges and the big decision-making moments and what's at stake. Like I, it just, you know, I'm sure John, like when you just walk into a room and you look at a client or you look at a problem or you look at a campaign and you just go, okay, I don't know how this is going to end, but I feel a thousand percent comfortable with advising my client on what to do next or what this process is going to look like. Like, I shepherd people. I help them make decisions. I help them find more value in their company. I help them position their company to a buyer in the best possible light. That's the other thing I really love about my job is like, I can look at a company. I've looked at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies throughout my lifetime. And I could look at a company and find the golden nuggets that a buyer is going to be so excited about, but the seller, the owner, hasn't really paid a lot of attention to because they're so busy running the company. And I could paint, you know, the best possible version of the company, not only just to the buyer, but to the seller too. I love, I love opening the eyes up of a seller saying, hey, wait a minute, man, don't discount all that you've done and that idea that you have in the back of your head that you didn't implement let me tell you something that is awesome and someone's gonna love that opportunity i love accentuating value to a seller in a way that they've never seen before it's not bs like i get equally as excited 
for a company when I see like these great things they have going on. And then I, it, it's my responsibility then. I feel like I've been bestowed this responsibility by a seller to go out and really represent their blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, I want to create generational wealth for a founder, right? Like I wake up every morning and I say to myself, I'm creating life-changing events for people. How do I make this the best for everybody? This is the last and final stage of entrepreneurship. Very few people get to an exit. Very few people get to a successful acquisition. And this is for me like such a privilege. I think it's so rad what I do. It is like the pinnacle of my career to be doing what I do from an authentic place. Like, listen, I nothing against other M&A professionals who haven't had businesses and haven't had their own exits. But, you know, I know who I would want to sell my business, right? If I had a business, I would want somebody who had a business and sold a business, not someone who went to school on how to sell a business. Like, I feel so fortunate and it makes me want to work exponentially harder for the privilege I feel like I'm in. I take it as a burden and a privilege to help somebody sell their business. So how does somebody know when they're at that point where it's time to figure out their exit point and strategy? Yeah, that's awesome. Great question. If I can say it in reverse first, people sell their companies for three reasons and three reasons only. They're burnt out. That's it. You know, They've poured their heart, blood, sweat, and tears into this company. And physically, mentally, emotionally, there's no shame in the game. They just can't do it anymore. They want a break. They want to spend time with their family. Whatever it is, they're burnt out. They want to sell. Hopefully, they catch it sooner rather than later. In other words, before the business starts to decline. So that's reason number one why people sell. Number two is shiny objects, right? Entrepreneurs, they love doing business. And they have these three other projects that they want to start. And they've built their baby up to a certain point and they're ready to pass it on. Maybe they don't have the skills to scale it from a million dollars to $50 million. So they're just, just really ready to tackle their next challenge, to build their next business. So that's the second reason why. And the third reason is, listen, businesses are either cash flow businesses or you are building equity in your business, just like a home, right? Are you, is your home appreciating or is your rental property just bringing you cash flow? So in that light, the savvy entrepreneur is building equity and then they realize, okay, I got my $5 million, $50 million valuation, whatever it is. And now I'm, I'm complete. I got my goose egg. I got my, I'm not my goose egg. I got my, my nest egg. I'm, the golden I'm ready. goose egg. Yeah. The thank you, the golden goose egg, and I'm ready. I, I got my. I can retire. Tahiti, here I come. So those are three reasons why people sell. When do you start to plan? Well, hopefully, like that gives people some structure on figuring out, you know, what's going to be the impetus of me selling. I always tell people, call me yesterday. Because 
there's a lot of work in preparing for an exit. Some companies I work with for two years plus in order to get them ready. And getting ready looks like financial analysis, getting your P&Ls in shape, understanding how your balance sheet works and how it relates to your P&L. What kind of biz dev opportunities do you have in the cooker? Where are you going to put your investment right now? You want to reinvest in the company? Should it be in staffing? Should it be in product dev? Where should it go? There's so many decisions that can impact a couple of things, how quickly your business sells and for how much. So I always tell people this is not literally not a sales pitch, but get in front of an M&A advisor, get in front of a broker yesterday if you think you have an exit plan down the road or if you want to develop an exit plan down the road. It could take anywhere from three months to a year to sell a company. That's once it goes to market. And typically, you want to give someone like myself a good three, four, five months in the trenches with you because I'm your representative. You know, I'm a board advisor to some degree. You know, I'm the face of your business until it's time for you to meet Mr. Buyer. And so the more time I have with you, not just your company, but with you to understand your goals, to understand, you know, all the things that we have to know as an M&A, you know. So ideally, you know, yeah, I yesterday, you want to sell in two years, call me yesterday. If you, you know, let's just put it in a little bit more practical terms, 2023, you want to sell in Q4 of 2023, email me January 1. Let's get on a call. Let's start this process. We do, I do the majority of the heavy lifting so you don't have to. So the longer I have to really, you know, properly represent all that you are, the better. Because I'm going to take my job super seriously. And I will say this, like a good broker, I don't get paid until... And my client gets paid or if my client gets paid. So I'm highly motivated, incentivized to get to know as much about a person and their company as possible. Your business then is kind of like a realtor for the business world. Exactly. We you just, just you have to make the house look pretty and you got to accentuate the strong parts of the home and fix the stuff that's wrong with it to the best of your ability and then put it on the market. And that's when you get paid. Yeah. And there's a couple of other pieces to it that I think I want to bring out is psychology is a huge piece to this to make sure everyone feels satisfied and taken care of. Because when you get down to the final days, the final weeks of selling your company, there's always an emotional roller coaster that begins to happen. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's gnarly, man. John's gnarly what happens. It's pretty much like clockwork. I experienced it. And it does take a good broker is acutely aware of the personalities and the emotions that are happening in the deal because it's our job to get the deal done and to get everybody to the best place possible on the other side. If the groundwork isn't laid, if trust is not present in a deal, 
then there's a more, it's a high likelihood then that the deal will break. So yes, it's very much similar to real estate. And there are also some other really important or under, like other things in the works, other things that are happening underneath the surface that are integral to the process. So what does it look like for the onboarding process when, when I make the decision that I'm ready to talk to you? Is that something that basically you're just evaluating the business and seeing if it's going to pay off in the end? Or because from what I'm getting, there's no money up front necessarily? None. Yeah, there's no money up front. So the way it'll look is if like if you came to me and you wanted me to sell an agency, we would probably have a good, you know, four hours, five hours or so of talking about the company, understanding the contracts, the clients, the staffing, the capabilities, competitors, opportunities. We would do a real 360. It's like an interview. And once we get to the number, let's just say, and this is a whole other, I mean, I love talking about deals. So I'll just touch on something. I could give you a number for your agency. and Let's just play with the numbers and say it's 5 million. Well, right now on paper, the way the business reads, it, it reads at a valuation of $5 million. But that's only kind of the first go at it because once we start talking about terms, like I, I'll brief you on what offers could look like, you could start to see that, well, wait a minute, my business is valued at $5 million, but through looking at terms, there's actually a way I can get $10 million or the way the terms read, I can get $3 million at close and walk away and, and not have to deal with seller notes and earnouts and equities and all the things. So yeah, when we, the onboarding process is both valuation, is both getting a 360 of the business, and, and that's actually not just both, it's so much more. I want to know what your goals are in terms of post-exit. And then I'm going to paint you the picture of what your opportunities could be like if you find the right buyer. Or I might say, you know, it, it, there's, there's just, and I also will walk you through, I should probably also say this. It's a three-step process to selling your business. It's the onboarding, it's the actual selling, and then it's once you're under contract. So I'm going to try during this, you know, those four or five hours walk you through as, as much of the drip feed as much of this as possible so someone doesn't get overwhelmed but there are essentially three stages so i love this show for this and i don't mean this rude mean or ugly but not everybody mm -hmm. who is listening is particularly excited about this business model right and that's what's so awesome about the show is to find people like you who are passionate about what they're oh, yeah. doing so what is that? Why? Like, why is this so interesting to you that you love it and you want to do it every single day and you're not burned out? You don't feel obligated. You know, you don't have those feelings you had with that first business you exited. Yeah, it, because I know, in the, the, I know so deep in my heart that this is good work because I've been through, I walk through the fire myself and I had people helping me. And I'm not, it's not lost on me how difficult this process is. And it's not lost on me on how, like, there's so many things that can go wrong. 
And there are such huge upsides when things go right. And so I could turn off all the noise around, you know, what people say about brokers. I have such a thick skin around uh, brokers just are in it for the money or brokers are like used car salesmen or, or a broker, broker, broker. It's like it, you could, it doesn't phase me one bit because I lived it myself. I've been through it myself. And I also know what, listen, I'm going to make somebody in the next like four months, I'm going to make somebody 40, $50 million. And that's going to change their, I see their children. I see their children's children all being positively impacted by that. I mean, what a privilege, what a privilege. And I could take that to the grave that I, one family is now generationally set for who knows how long. Like, and I work so hard that, and and this is just for everybody too. Like when you work so hard at something, you have a sense of dignity and that can't ever be shaken. Like my job is exceptionally hard. I mean, I can only work sometimes a few hours a day because of how much energy goes into what we do. And yeah, I'm just so in line and I so know my truth in what I do every day. And I, I'm, it's not a, I know it's an uphill battle to convince people or sell people that brokers or not all brokers, but some brokers are, their hearts are really in the right place. So I just hope that, you know, how I communicate, what I say opens the door of trust. I can't fake the funk, as they say. You know, it's just who I am. I'm, and I want hopefully that integrity comes across when I talk to people. Yeah, you can't. I'm sure that you know. There's obviously some things you can't say, and maybe you can't answer the question at all. But what's the largest deal you've brokered? Yeah, I'm doing this ninety million dollar deal, which will smash what I have going on right now. That will be the biggest deal I've worked on. That's amazing. Years. It's huge. It's Wall Street Journal worthy. And it's funny, man. I will tell you something that I I wanted to say it earlier. I don't know how much more time we have, but I teach at the university sometimes and I tell these young entrepreneurs, I tell them, listen, like, there's no like at the end of the day, business is it's like salt of the earth things. In other words, I've I've sold a five million dollar company that's in better shape than this ninety million dollar company, <laughs> and don't let the MBAs or the price tag or the 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 Ubers of the world not making money like don't let all that noise get in the system. Like if you're a hardworking entrepreneur and you know how to build relationships and value resources and you are humble and curious, you'll be successful. You don't need to go to business school to crush it. Get that out of your way. You don't need a super high valuation or a series A or blah, blah, blah. Like business boils down to, are you a good person? Do people like working with you? Are you successful at building relationships, at harvesting resources? Are you humble? Are you curious? Like you can't convince me otherwise. I've seen it. I've been around the planet 
five times to China. Like it boils down, business success boils down to that period. I've worked with Apple. I've worked with first-time entrepreneurs. And let me tell you something. The spirit is the same. The spirit of kindness and goodness and doing the right thing is the same between the people that I've worked with in the executive boardrooms of Apple all the way down to someone who was taking a second mortgage to buy one of my food franchises. It's the same thing. Kindness, curiosity, humility. Yeah. (laughs) So where do we find you to support you outside of, you know, obviously if I have a business, I know if I want to sell it, I can come to you, but are you on social media? Like how do we support your efforts and connect with you and, and learn from you? Yeah. Thanks. You know, LinkedIn is always great. You can ping me on LinkedIn. My name is Joe-Pergolisi. So P-E-R-G-O-L-I-Z-Z-I. There's a Dr. Joe Pergolisi. That's not me. But (laughs) other than that, there's Joe Pergolisi on LinkedIn. You could also email me, uh, which is J-P-E-R-G-O-L-I-Z-Z-I at websitecloser's.com. Those are probably the two easiest ways to find me. I'd give you gotcha. my Instagram, but it's just pictures of my daughter. <laughs> oh, I got you. Hey, you know what, man? The, the personal side of things is always nice. I do the same thing. It may be a business page, but you're going to see my family and, and the fun stuff I like to do too. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. If that's the case, I'm not used to, I don't usually give out my Instagram, but if people want to find me on oh, Instagram. You don't, you don't have to, you know, this is, this is okay. your show, man. Right. You, you share what you want okay. to share and you keep private what you want to keep private for sure. But Got yeah, it. no, I, I love the chance to connect with people and learn from them. And, you know, it may be something where right now, OMG Event Co., my company may not be ready to sell, you know, we're still a startup, yep. but at some yep. point in time, we're going to be ready. And yep between now and then I'm always ready to learn, especially from other people who've had successful businesses and been able to do these things. And regardless if you're in business or not, man, it's just nice to connect with people who have a cool story. Like going back to the beginning of this episode, you know, the skateboarding scene, it was something that, you know, I don't want to make you feel bad. I was born in 1988, but (laughs) I was also super into that scene. And absolutely. I know who Supreme is. You know, I've gone to those types of shops out here in the Houston area where, you know, I was building a custom deck with all of these like custom parts and it was a $200 board. And it was just like the, the coolest thing that I could do was put together this top of the line skateboard and I wasn't even good at skateboarding. I just enjoyed it, you know, and it's nice to connect on that level of someone who's kind of been around that scene, that industry and knows those people. It's, It's really cool to hear that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's such a good to see where that industry has gone and how it's influenced modern day culture and society. It, it, you know, not only just having the kindred spirit connection, but that whole industry is just what it's done for modern day culture across the world is just really cool. It's fascinating. So, yeah. I mean, you got the guys who were just all about the culture, the lifestyle and the skill, you know, of skateboarding. And then you got guys like Tony Hawk, who are an ultimate entrepreneur that's made a brand out of himself, his name, and has just like rocked the industry on the capitalizing on the fame side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And he's done such good work. You know, he builds skate parks in impoverished areas. He's got a whole foundation 
I mean, the ethos is there. There are good, good guys and girls for that matter in this industry, even in snowboarding too. You know, Burton has a whole where they take inner city kids and they teach them snowboarding. You know, they have a whole program. There's a lot of integrity or consciousness inside of these industries. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I tell you, that's something I need to do. I've never even seen real snow, let alone had the chance to what? ski or snowboard yet. Yeah, I'm from South Texas, man. We don't. We had our snow begetting uh, last year, year before. Uh-huh. I think it was last year, but it was. Don't get me wrong; it was the most real snow I've ever seen in my life. But it wasn't that true to life snow like my dad grew up in. So that is definitely something I need to do. And Colorado is somewhere I want to see so bad. Oh, really? I just I hear it's beautiful. I see the pictures and all that stuff. And yeah, man, that is something I want to do is get out there on the slopes and just figure it out. Oh, come, man. It'd be so fun to ride. Come, come. Heck yeah. Colorado is Colorado is beautiful almost all year round. If you're down in, you know, outside of the mountains, we do get snow here. It has a tendency to to melt pretty quickly because it's so sunny here. Once you get into the mountains, though, the Rocky Mountains are just, they're just epic. It's its own land of mountainous caverns and snow-topped mountain peaks everywhere. It's It's got everything except I wish it has a little bit more water. You have 300 days of sun. I mean, the mountains, everyone's outside. This is turning into a commercial for Colorado. Right, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's beautiful, man. But I, I can't thank you enough for being yeah. on the show today and, and sharing your personal side and some really good info for the business side, too. And we yeah. wish you continued success, yeah. man. Thanks for being here and sharing it. Yeah, my pleasure. This was fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Small Business Origins. We can't thank you enough for always supporting the small businesses we have on this show. So make sure that you check out everything Joseph has going on, man, and and look at them online. Look at WebsiteClosers.com. If you've got somebody that has a business they're looking to sell, then make sure you're getting them in touch with somebody. But why not the man right here that we've had on this show. What a great purpose for being in this business. It's awesome to hear. And thank y'all again for just tuning in to another episode. We'll see you next Thursday, but as always stay beefy, my friends. Thanks for listening to another episode of Small Business Origins. I love an origin story. If you like what you just heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share with a friend. You guys, check this out. They're going to love it. You're going to love it. 